I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food. My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X. Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds. What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos, because they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Although, the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times. It's pretty hype. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Daniel Bender, standing in for Coral Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, whose forthcoming issue is entirely devoted to COVID dispatches. In it, authors from around the world offer short, intimate portraits of early responses to the food crises of this pandemic. And hosts from the journal's editorial collective will be joined by some of the featured authors to share their stories and to hear how things have progressed since their original submissions in March and April of 2020. My guest this week is Jacques Rousseau. Jacques lectures in ethics and critical reasoning in the School of Management Studies at the University of Cape Town and is the co-author of Critical Thinking, Science, and Pseudoscience, Why We Can't Trust Our Brains. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. Jacques, that seems like a wonderful title and perhaps a really good encapsulation of many, many responses to uh, the COVID virus. Can you share, just to start, by way of introduction, can you share where you live in South Africa? And I imagine you're back to teaching and lecturing by now. Yes, I live in, in Cape Town, which is, is often derided as a, as a particularly non-South African part of South Africa in the sense that it's very uh, tourist industry driven and very cosmopolitan and, and not quite representative of the kind of vast disparity of, of socioeconomic situations in, in the country. Um, that's where I am and I... We're back to teaching, yes, but I mean, the confounder here is that I've been teaching online myself since 2013. So by contrast to many of my colleagues, the uh, the switch to online, we're calling it emergency remote teaching here, um, has been quite seamless. I haven't had to do too much adaptation, whereas I'm I'm watching and trying to assist many of my colleagues who are who are floundering about in, in bewilderment trying to cope. We aren't back on campus yet. Uh, only very select groups of students have been returned, but uh, the campus is by and large shut down still. Well, I'll count myself among those who are floundering with online teaching. But can you, perhaps this has changed the way, not necessarily the way you teach, but what you teach? 
it's it's not changed what I teach. It's changed my my mindset, and I'm I'm sure you and and many listeners would uh, sympathize with the idea that our mental states are, are, are quite fluid at the moment. It's it's very hard to keep a handle on how worried one should be and and how should one uh, be responding. It's not changed what I teach, but it's more changed my my level of sympathy for students because we've always had anybody who teaches knows this you've always had people who take chances and and try to slide through systems without doing too much work but it's now become incredibly difficult and also grossly insensitive to uh, to apply too strong a burden on people because you don't really know who in their family is out of a job or has died or is sick or whatever so it's 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 changed my my psychological response to to student interaction but but what i teach has remained roughly the same. Well, your submission focused on the first few days and weeks of the lockdown in Cape Town. Could I now invite you to read it for our listeners? Sure. Um, I wrote my piece uh, probably about a month after lockdown began. It was on, on April 21. So I'll proceed to read that. Uh, so April 21, 2020 from Cape Town. South Africa has been subject to the Disaster Management Act since March 27, and I write this on April 21. The Act is the legislative vehicle for one of the earliest and most stringent lockdowns yet implemented. We can't buy anything other than essential goods, and because our ministers are sometimes more interested in public attention and displays of authority, what counts as essential can change from day to day. Alcohol and cigarettes are not considered essential, And if our Minister of Police could have his way, alcohol would never be on sale again. The prohibition on alcohol sales has had a positive effect in that hospital wards are now freed from the usual, large in South Africa, number of people arriving in various states of disrepair following car accidents that occurred while drivers or pedestrians were intoxicated. It was also suggested that domestic violence would decrease in the absence of the disinhibiting effects of alcohol. Any observed decline in domestic violence should, however, be understood in the South African context. We comprise two nations, one of which is very poor and the other, relatively, very rich. Yes, perhaps those who are poor are now too hungry to fight and are instead focused on survival. But then there are those of us who could afford to stockpile enough alcohol to see us through, or so some of us thought. Some members of the latter group are now no doubt trapped in a lockdown house with people who have a substantial supply of both alcohol and the rage they carried in with them. The Disaster Management Act has also provided the nation with an opportunity to reflect on various philosophical concerns. If I could take a walk without socialising, why should I not break the law and do so? asks some. To which part of the answer is that you're only free to do so because of the others who stay at home and also because the police, who would normally stop you from doing so, are in the townships policing people who live cheek by jowl, share a public toilet with a dozen others and who don't enjoy the luxury of choosing what to cook for dinner or sometimes choosing to have dinner at all. A question raised yesterday, 24 hours, sorry, 24 days into the lockdown, was of particular interest with regard to food. The Minister of Cooperative Governance clarified in a regulatory amendment that while food is an essential good, 
cooked hot food would no longer be considered as such. So you cannot sell a roast chicken, for example, unless it is no longer hot. We have not been told the temperature at which a chicken ceases to be hot, so vendors are now suffering the added moral burden of having to become potential lawbreakers any time they make this determination for themselves. As trivial as this instance of philosophy in lockdown might seem, I cannot help but also think of how non-trivial this issue is to those who are performing the essential services that keep our country somewhat operational, and for whom instantly available hot food is more important than ever. In crisis, there is often innovation too. At a branch of the spa supermarket, one can find a cheeky display that collates all the ingredients one would need to make pineapple beer. It's a small example of the sorts of gallows humor that helps us to cope with our uncertainty regarding what happens next. While I might end up drinking pineapple beer, or the grape juice we've been fermenting at home for the last five days, I do not need fear running out of food, thanks to a well-stocked kitchen and a companion who cooks better meals than most that we ate when we used to go out. We've been in lockdown for a month now. Yesterday, a restaurateur and friend sent each of his employees 500 rand, $27 at today's rates, and received messages of thanks that express a level of desperation nobody should have to endure. Now we can buy electricity, food, and nappies, read one of them. Among the many things I would like to not forget when this is over are the pleasures of the home-cooked meal. And while I do miss going to restaurants, I know that I will never again see many of the waiters and waitresses whom I've known for years. And I wonder if I can ever enjoy going out for a meal as much as I used to. Thanks, Jacques, for reading your dispatch. We'll be back after a short break. You are listening to Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly one billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. I'm Daniel Bender, standing in for Coral Lee. Jacques Rousseau just shared his dispatch, South Africa under lockdown. Jacques, I find this a remarkably moving piece, and I'm struck at how it was filled with frustration, a fair amount of anger. It ends on a real moment of sadness, 
But also in between, there's some hope in unexpected places. Can you tell us how things have changed how you wrote, uh, since you wrote this? In retrospect, is there anything you would have recorded or expressed differently? The weird thing, Dan, is that, is that depending on which day you ask me, I might give an entirely different answer because what strikes one as problematic or hopeful or reason for pessimism keeps changing. And, and uh, currently I'm, I'm thinking that I would have changed a lot because it has since I wrote this, and I, I wrote this when most of the nation, I think, was still somewhat optimistic about a science-led and principled approach to the coronavirus. And I think more and more the balance has shifted towards people fearing that politics and corruption and and simple pragmatic kind of uh, satisfying the voter base has been more of the concern and, and incoherence in decision-making has uh, been driven by that rather than by confusion or emerging science and so forth. So, so I mean, practically what I, what I would have said is that since then we've had stability in terms of things like food. I mean, the cooked food example, I give it the piece, that absurdity has gone. But And restaurants are open. They can't serve alcohol, but they're open. But we still have absurdities just like that. So as one example, restaurants are open. They need to temperature check us. They need to record our names for contact tracing and our temperatures. But taxis, we have a large network of informal taxis, which are basically little uh, uh, minibuses. I've forgotten what they're called in the US, but yeah, but uh, sort of 15 or so seater buses, which are completely unregulated and can occupy, can operate at 100% occupancy with no temperature regulation or contact tracing. Um, religious services are banned except for funerals at a maximum of 50 people. So, so there's things one can't explain on a rational basis as exceptions, um, which continue to confound one. But much of uh, the, yeah, the restaurant industry, as I say, is open. But I would report today, uh, we, we walked through the waterfront, which is the premier tourist attraction in the Western Cape, and we walked past row upon row of shuttered restaurants in a place that would normally be uh, completely buzzing with, with tourist activity. So yeah, I'd, I'd yeah I'd report a, a wasteland of, of food and drink basically. So do you find I was struck in reading your piece and in hearing you read it again that that you seem to describe a a breakdown between public displays of government authority and public health. Has that resolved itself in any way, or do you find that those that that gap is widening. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm a person who, tr- who tries to to deploy the the kind of principle of charity when when one assesses motivations, and 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 of course, there is a conflict here between a public health imperative and an economic imperative. But we are in a country which came into the pandemic massively socioeconomically. Uh, separate and and with an enormous class of people who are on the poverty line already. And they are, I mean, I'm not saying that we're exceptional in the sense. I think that the differences are perhaps just a bit more acute. The same thing is true 
in the US and elsewhere. And I, I, I think that, that that difference has been exacerbated to the extent that the economic costs have clearly, in most people's minds, started looking like they are being disproportionately ignored in favor of a a worst-case scenario in the public health sort of um, interpretation of things. And one doesn't want to see people putting other people at risk or an insensitive government policy that allows for the spread of something which could kill people. But uh, the, the scales have, in a sense, tipped to where it's quite clear, I think, to most observers that the not just deaths but destructions of livelihoods and of educations and those generational long-term effects are, I think, now clearly outweighing risks of opening up uh, certain sectors or more sectors of the economy. So we still, so in the industry that is relevant to, to Gastronomica and to Heritage Radio Network, we are still seeing curfew, curfews of, of 10 p.m., whereby if you are running a restaurant, you're talking about a dinner service closing at, let's say, 8, if you want to clean the kitchens and get staff back at home and so forth. And those exact workers are in restaurants which are marginal, which, which are very minimally occupied because people can't drink wine and they don't go out as a consequence. So they're there and they're, they're having to curtail dinner service and go home early because of reasons like that. And these are the people who were already at risk and who are now increasingly at risk. Why do you find that there was such a focus on alcohol and alcohol consumption? We have a very... Um, yeah, I mean, here I'd be, I'd be tempted to give a very pessimistic answer, which is that many of our government ministers are inculcated in 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 a history or in a tradition of of very much kind of state control economies i mean going back to our revolutionary struggle and the liberation of the country towards democracy and so forth i think many tendencies are towards authoritarianism and thinking that we know best so a kind of a distrust of the of the will or the uh, yeah the desires of, of the population and they can't be the the idea is that they can't be trusted, and I mean I sympathise with that. People can't be trusted. So so get back to our to get back to our liquor um, ban that was briefly lifted for about six weeks, and um, two or so weeks ago it was lifted, and right after that hospital admissions spiked dramatically because people then overindulged and started having those car accidents and domestic violence increasing and so forth. So the government slapped down the liquor ban again. So so that, in a sense, does prove their case. But no kind of medium or, or, or moderate strategies have been considered, such as selling liquor on two days a week and limiting the amount or raising the taxes or something like that. They seem to um, be prone to choosing a, a binary strategy. You know, it's a, either you can have everything or you can have absolutely nothing. And, and, I, and I think that it, it stems from both that authoritarian streak and from a mistrust of the population. Well, it also speaks, I think, in, in some ways, again, looking back at your piece, to the ways in which the word essential is getting mobilized, perhaps. You know, here it's fascinating how it's used in, the, in your piece, 
Here in Canada, if you walk down the street, you see plenty of signs and windows and houses um, thanking essential workers. But we haven't really talked about essential foods here, here in Canada. And, and yet that seems to have been a source of a great deal of debate in, in South Africa. But what does essential mean when it comes to food? especially in the context of, as you put it, the two nations in one. Yeah, precisely. I mean, so, so, so at the time when I, when I wrote this, the idea of what was essential was almost comically uh, obsessively focused on. We, we, since I wrote that, between then and now, the Minister of Trade and Industry released a rather absurd list of clothing items we could buy. And... This was in consultation with trade unions and manufacturers. And we suddenly found that you weren't allowed to buy T-shirts or open-shoot sandals. I mean, this is the middle of winter, right? So many people wouldn't have wanted to buy those things anyway. <laughs> but leaving that aside, I might have wanted to wear a T-shirt underneath a parka or a, you know, a sweater or, or whatever. But um, th that was quickly overturned. But there was no shame or embarrassment or second thoughts about publishing this absurd list of what was essential. And on the food side, the point I make in the piece very briefly is that the idea of me being an essential worker who is, for example, uh, uh, transporting people who are going to do testing in some sort of informal settlement, and the easiest thing and sometimes the most affordable thing I might be able to buy is a loaf of bread and a roast chicken, that that suddenly becomes complicated or compromised by these strange laws, which don't seem to serve a very clear health purpose. So, so one starts having to be sympathetic to kind of conspiratorial narratives around you know, which lobby group or which trade union influence this sort of decision. It's, it's very hard for a population to maintain morale and trust in the leadership that is, that is governing you through a crisis if there's such yeah, apparent absurdity in what you're being told is allowed and not allowed. Which perhaps suggests why I, in, in reading your piece, while well, it ends on a very bittersweet moment, right before that, there's, there's a moment rather fascinating hope in your your story of drinking pineapple beer Do you, or how to brew it the display is about how to brew it in supermarkets do you mean that is hopeful or is that a or is that part of a recognition of some of that absurdity i think it's more the more the latter i mean there's uh, everybody has these uh, exceptional narratives around their nations and their cultures and and the ways in which they cope with adversity. And, and South Africa certainly has that as a kind of uh, frontier nation who, you know, at least in terms of white South Africa, who colonized and, and never mind the obvious fact that if you colonize, then there's somebody that you are kind of colonizing or controlling or exterminating or whatever. But in the white South African exceptional story, it's about taming the wild land and making do and making your own food and harvesting and all of that stuff. So, so, so this this photograph was of of pineapples and yeast and sugar, all kind of put together. It's like we can't sell you 
alcohol, but hey, he has a clue as to what you can as to what you can do. So it is a bittersweet thing because it it on the one hand speaks to people making a plan in the face of a dire situation, but at the same time, it it shouldn't really be the kind of thing that one needs to resort to. And 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 I can say personally that I've tried it twice, and both times I I, I lifted the lid and, and saw disturbing amounts of mold and poured it all down the drain. So I didn't taste it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, I was optimistic. The last one looked like it was going well until about day six, and then I, I got afraid. Apparently, that can be quite harmful. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. There, have you started thinking, as, as you, you mentioned, walking around uh, Cape Town and seeing the rows of, of shut-down restaurants, have you started thinking beyond the lockdown? Um, are there ways of repairing? At the point of food and drink, are there ways of repairing the relationships between South Africans and the government? I, I think that that's a very, very long road we're going to have to travel i mean so just to put listeners into context and we with this liquor ban and the smoking ban we're talking about around so, so last year in 2019 the liquor industry contributed about 2.9 billion us dollars not rands in taxes to the government to the fiscus the smoking ban is costing us around 2 million dollars a day and in that context bear in mind that we have just accepted an IMF loan of 4.3 billion and that's further in a context where S&P Fitch and Moody's have all graded us as junk status um, further I'm sorry it just keeps getting worse we we keep hearing stories of corruption in government and money being siphoned off for preferential tenders or people who have contacts in power and so forth. So we had this little moment of optimism when, when Saul Ramaphosa took over from Jacob Zuma, who was known to be corrupt and is in court for various acts of corruption. And people thought that this was going to get better, but I think that confidence has completely uh, waned. And in terms of the food and, and wine industry, the, the figures, I mean, there's a court case coming up next week, but the preliminary documents from that case say that the wine estates are losing around $17 million a week because of the ban. 120,000 jobs have been lost. Restaurants, we've got about 800,000 people employed in the industry. A third of them have lost their jobs. It's, it's going to take a long, long time before any confidence is restored. So, those are that. That's a that's a remarkable story of a deluge of economic bad news. But what about those questions of of public trust and the ways in which people have had to confront as as and I speak to you as you know, as a philosopher have had to confront new kinds of issues of morality on a day to day level. How do the, the ways in which they've resolved or not resolved those kinds of questions of trust and morality, at, again, at the point of consumption, the point of food and drink, how does that play into the moving forward beyond lockdown? Not necessarily beyond COVID, but beyond lockdown. 
So the, I mean, you'll you'll find you'll find a range, and I mean this we've seen this reported in the Post and the New York Times and whatever. It's it's true all over the world. There, there's there, there's really kind of stark nexus cases of people kind of mask shaming and people being obsessively uh, paranoid, and 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 between those extremes, there's a wealth of 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 moral and political and philosophical choices that that people are are making. So in terms of relationship to food, I was speaking to to my brother who is the publisher of a of a wine guide in this country who recently traveled outside of the city and outside of the city more in kind of country areas where there's perhaps a broader network of of trust between people. Um restaurants were open and trading and he and selling wine and and he reported that a wine shop was trading with signage and and no pretense and no disguising the fact that they were trading and people are struggling to to find some sort of balance between i mean i, I know that i can see certain friends because i know that they are i mean i can't legally but i know that i could theoretically see certain friends because i trust that they have maintained a certain bubble of of protection but as soon as you extend that a little bit too far, then you know both that you now become a potential vector of spread yourself if they haven't been responsible themselves. So the prudent thing is, of course, to insulate oneself entirely, but the prudent thing doesn't help us to move forward into any kind of ordinary uh, life or civilization again. So, so everybody is weighing up these complexities, and, and I think by and large we find people falling into the, the binary of either saying, I am going to uh, subscribe to the kind of moral panic and just put myself behind barred windows and only go out for a ninja raid to the shops to get something. Or people who say, as I heard reported away from the cities, who just are now living life as normal and, and ignoring any kind of potential spread and just saying, well, you know, I'd rather die than live behind those barred windows. Sometimes a visit to a restaurant is a question of an, an enormous moral load. Well, thanks so much, Jacques, for joining us today. The COVID Dispatches series is produced in partnership with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. More essays like this one, shared today, can be found in issue 20.3, slated for publication on the journal's University of California Press website in late August 2020. Meant to be eaten listeners can enjoy a 30% off single print copies of this issue with the discount code GASTROOG2020, all caps, all one word. And that offer is valid through June 2021. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more COVID dispatches on Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Daniel Bender. Thanks for joining. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.